Hello and welcome to History for the Taking. I'm Desmond Mantle. I'm Kimmy Adler. And we're students at Claremont McKenna College, partnered with the Keck Center for International and Strategic Studies. History for the Taking is a four-part series examining the elusive justice of artifact repatriation. When should we repatriate artifacts? When should we avoid repatriating artifacts? And what are the complex, nuanced legal and ethical issues that play into it? Uh, today we'll be joined by our guest, Jason Felch. Uh, who uncovered a sweeping scandal across museums uh, across America uh, regarding the purchasing and display of looted artifacts uh, from many parts of what was formerly the ancient world. Uh, but we'll first be talking about uh, a particular case that Kimmy will start by introducing. Yeah, so before we have Jason on the show, we want to sort of give you a, a little brief on the most famous case of a, a country's actions against a curate, an American curator who purchased looted artifacts. And her name is Marion True. So Marion True was the curator at the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles, uh, beginning in 1986 until she resigned in 2005. True was highly influential in the curatorial world, particularly when it came to ancient artifacts. Um, she advocated a really progressive Getty acquisition policy in 1987 and then subsequently in 1995. In 1987, um, she advocated for a policy that was eventually passed um, that if a source government could prove that an object had been excavated illegally, the Getty would return the object back to the source country. In 1995, the Getty went even further, where they even were talking about the object's provenance. If the Getty didn't see thorough documentation on the object and didn't have a quote-unquote clean provenance, um, so Marion True was applauded in the curatorial world for advancing and defending these progressive and seemingly just acquisition policies. Unfortunately, um, even though Marion True was advocating for these progressive policies publicly, like at academic conferences, um, things were a little bit messier behind the scenes. So one of the most prominent examples of a controversial Getty acquisition was a statue of Aphrodite. Um, this statue was seven feet tall and the Getty acquired it in 1988. Even though you could see clean breaks in the statue, that's clearly a sign of looting. And this is uh, this statue is actually where Jason Felch and Ralph Fremolino got the title for their book, Chasing Aphrodite. And um, so fast forwarding into 2005, the Getty is in a lot of trouble in the press because of Felch's and Fremolino's LA Times story. And um, this is where they get into legal trouble. So in 2005, Italy pressed charges against Marion True for knowingly buying artifacts that were looted. And um, this was the first time that an, an American curator had been criminally prosecuted by a foreign government. And so True appeared in the Italian criminal court, but the case dragged on for a very long time, five years. And by 2010, 
the charges against True had been dropped because the statute of limitations had expired. And even though nothing really came out of the actual uh, actual trial itself, that entire process sparked a movement within the museum community in order to repatriate artifacts that had questionable provenances or that were looted. So, for example, the Met Museum returned a couple of artifacts and as well as the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. So that's sort of my little brief and now we're going to our interview. Today's guest is Jason Felch, an author and investigative reporter. In 2005, Jason Felch with Ralph Romolino exposed the, Getty's, the Getty Museum's involvement in the trade of illicit and looted antiquities. Thereafter, in 2006, Felch and Fermolino wrote a book called Chasing Aphrodite, which has won the California Book Award, the Safe Beacon Award, and the ARCA Award for Art Crime Scholarship. After leaving the LA Times in 2014, Jason now runs an investigative consulting firm called Codex Research. So welcome, Jason. Thank you so much for being on our podcast. We're so excited to have you. Delighted to be here. Um, Just before we like dive into the questions, um, you were the inspiration behind this podcast. So we want to say thank you for writing Chasing Aphrodite because, um, you know, it's changed. It's fundamentally changed my worldview. So thank you. It's nice to hear that. I'm glad someone's reading the book. (laughs) (laughs) I, I should get to questions. <laughs> um, so our first question for you was, so what was the response to Chasing Aphrodite like from the general public, museum officials, and the academic community? And also, if you want to talk about um, what it was like to break this big of a story, that would be great as well. Uh, yeah, I, you know, um... I'll start with the second one because it, it kind of gets us to the, <clears throat> to the first. Um, I started reporting on the Getty um, uh, while um, uh, an intern at the LA Times. I came to the LA Times in um, 2004 as an intern and, um, you know, wanted to do investigative work and, um, uh, you know, spent my internship there trying to do some, um, some stories, some investigative stories on different topics. And I got hired at the end of my internship and my first day back on the job or my first week back on the job, the investigations editor at the time um, uh, pulled me aside and said, you know, we're wondering if you could help out with this, um, this new story that we're just starting on. The director of the Getty Museum, a woman named Deborah Gribben, just quit and we're trying to figure out why. Um, I knew very little about museums in the art world at the time. I had, I was a good liberal arts major in college, but I had not studied um, certainly the contemporary art world and the way museums really work ever. So I came into the story, like most investigative reporters do, um, pretty new to the topic and, you know, wide-eyed in terms of um, what I would find. And we spent a good year trying to figure out what was going on at the Getty as an institution. Um, It's a nonprofit institution, and so it's Um, you know, subject to uh, both state and federal laws governing nonprofits. And that really has to do with how do they use their resources and are they using those resources for the public benefit or for private benefit? And what we found was that the um, head of the Getty at the time had been using the Getty's resources for his personal benefit. This is um, Barry Munitz, 
the CEO of the Getty Trust, which is over the institution over the museum. Um, we did that for a year and I thought uh, I was done. After a year on a story, an investigative story, uh, most reporters are, are done and ready to move to the next topic. And I thought I was, uh, I was done. Munits had been removed and the state attorney general was investigating the Getty's um, problems. Um, but a source pulled me aside and said, you know, that's not the big story at the Getty. And I said, well, what do you mean? We just, you know, just got the CEO fired and the state attorney general is investigating. And this person said, well, you know, what you really need to do is look at how they built their antiquities collection. And so that was the first tip that got me going down the path of, of really how the Getty had built its art collection and its collection of ancient art, particularly. Um, and that was something I knew very little about. I think, you know, like a lot of people, I'd never stopped to think how ancient art got to museums, how any of the art got to museums, much less about, you know, how much they paid and who they paid and where those objects had been before and how something like the statue of Aphrodite at the Getty, you know, which was 2000 years old um, and on display at the Getty Villa, you know, how had that gotten there? What was the path that object took? And what were the, you know, social, economic, um, you know, and legal consequences of that journey that those objects take before they get to the museums? Um, so that was a, a journey that I, that, that kind of sparked me down this road and I'm kind of still on that same road now because I, I continue even just before our call, um, investigating literary antiquities for sale on the art market, um, you know, every day uh, because they're still being sold openly uh, on the art market. Um, your, your other question was kind of what was the impact uh, of the book? The book came after really three years of intensive investigative reporting at the newspaper. And so, um, uh, you know, starting in 20, uh, 2005, really, and up through 2011, when the book released, um, the Getty became a case study in how American museums got their antiquities collections and the various legal and ethical problems associated with that. And through that reporting, we shone a spotlight, not for the first time, but in a dramatic way because of the Italian criminal investigation into the Getty's curator, we were able to take documents that we got from sources inside the Getty and match those up with investigative documents that the Italian authorities got from the looting networks that, were, that, they, were, that they were disrupting. And when you put those two sets of documents together, what you got was um, a, a fairly comprehensive view of, a, of a black market that has been around forever, but that really uh, our American museums and institutions, including the auction houses, including university museums, um, including some of our, you know, our most enlightened scholars of ancient art, have all been, you know, witting and unwitting participants in this black market um, for a long time. And so, the cumulative effect of, of of us writing a series of investigative stories in the newspaper and then uh, publishing the book um, was that uh, this kind of dirty little secret in the art world that much of the ancient art that's being bought and sold every day and collected by our local institutions, that much of that stuff was the product of a transnational organized crime, a black market that involved bad guys, um, uh, oftentimes uh, in the middle, um, smuggling these things, giving them false paperwork, um, and uh, jacking up the prices and selling them to museums um, that uh, I think oftentimes knew that they were doing business with bad guys and turned a blind eye to that fact and tried to hide that fact. And an important reason why we decided to do a book after a series of newspaper articles was to really demonstrate in depth that the museum officials involved 
knew that they were buying black market objects and um, and tried to cover that up. Thanks. That's a great answer. I, I want to kind of look a little bit more broadly too. What, in your opinion, are the most significant art looting cases in your experience, just sort of in, you know, in world history, if you can go that broadly, or, uh, you know, more specifically anything that you've investigated yourself, uh, what do you consider sort of the most significant or most heinous cases? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, there are some very notorious cases, uh, one of which I think you guys have already covered in your first podcast, which is the Elgin Marbles, right, or the Parthenon sculptures. Um, so that's the most famous case, and it's kind of the touchstone that ever you know people that know nothing about the art world or looted antiquities, everybody knows the case of these so-called Elgin marbles. Um, you know, although many people prefer to call them the Parthenon marbles because that's where they came from. Um, so I think that is probably the mo most notorious case. The problem is for me uh, singling out that case is that is a great example of a certain category of looted antiquity that really is about the colonial era. And one of the things that I've tried to do throughout my work is distinguish colonial era looting, looting that happened in the context of war and um, uh, one country taking over another country and uh, taking its, its goods home with it, um, including its art, distinguish that from a more modern contemporary and ongoing problem, which is antiquities trafficking today. Um, there's no bright line between those events, but, you know, roughly speaking, I draw a line at the kind of pre-World War II and post-World War II looting. Um, so the Elgin Marbles is probably the best example of the colonial era looting, which is, you know, and the story is well known and you've told it before. The most iconic story of uh, the second case, which is really what I've focused on, which is kind of contemporary ongoing looting, is probably the story of the Euphronius Crater at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And you guys probably know the story well, I don't need to recount it. But it was, um, you know, in the 1970s, uh, the Met bought this million dollar Greek vase, right? And immediately there were questions about where it came from. And it turned out that it had been somewhat recently looted from a tomb outside of Rome in a, in a little town called Trevetri, um, which is uh, an ancient Etruscan um, necropolis. And so um, good investigative work at the time uh, and uncovered, you know, the likelihood that this had been recently looted. What we were able to do in our book and in our reporting at the LA Times was to, was to really um, advance that story in some important ways by showing that um, the actual middleman in that transaction was a man named Giacomo Medici and, and, and Robert Hecht, and that those two, who were the subject of an investigation that ended up um, leading to the, uh, the criminal indictment of the Getty Curator, those two had been involved in that much earlier events. And so this was the signal moment in the art world and the archeological world in the 1970s that put looting and the consequences of looting on people's map. And that the same people involved in that looting episode in the 70s had gone on for decades longer to supply the Getty and the Boston Museum of Fine Arts and the Cleveland Museum and lots of other museums in the United States and beyond um, with hundreds, thousands more looted antiquities that came all from the exact same, you know, process of illegally excavating these graves and, and smuggling these objects with false paperwork. 
Um, thank you so much for that answer. We were actually, um, last night when we were preparing for the interview, we were talking about the, Euph the Euphronius crater at the Met. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. Um, so speaking of like post-World War II illicit trade of antiquities, could you describe how the illicit trade in looted art works? Yeah, it's interesting because I started um, investigating this world um, uh, with looting that was going on in Italy and then looked at looting that was going on in Greece and Turkey. And since then, I've really looked around the world. There's similar activity going on in Africa and Latin America, throughout the Middle East um, and elsewhere. And one of the things that strikes me is that the shape of the market, the way the market works, the illicit market works, is pretty similar in all of these places. And so I'll give you kind of a, a generalized version of it, but it generally seems to be true wherever we look. Um, it, the, the, the supply chain, if you will, starts on the ground in countries that are archeologically rich. They're called source countries oftentimes. And um, in these countries, there's oftentimes uh, a rich archeological history just under the ground, and people who are poor or in distress living on top of those archeological sites. And given the opportunity and the lack of law enforcement, um, uh, people, oftentimes poor people, sometimes organized criminal groups, will basically mine the local archeological sites for objects of value. Um, these people are oftentimes um, uh, you know, poor people who don't have means and are looking to do this um, either for subsistence purposes or as part of a criminal group. Um, so these objects will be dug up out of the ground. Uh, different looters that I visited in, in Italy, for example, had developed these ingenious ways of kind of sticking a metal pole into the earth to find um, these ancient Etruscan tombs, which were underground. And they, they could tell from the sound of the pole hitting the rock, whether it was likely to be a tomb that would be rich in goods or not. So these are, these are local poor people, but who've developed some sophisticated understanding, both of how to find archeological sites and then how to exploit them once they've been found. Um, uh, they dig them up and they find these, these ancient objects. And the problem they then face is how much is it worth and how do I sell it? Because the people, the market for those objects is not where they're found, right? Um, it's usually far away in wealthy countries where collectors are. So um, you'll often have a regional middleman who is a kind of organized crime figure or some other person who has a surprisingly sophisticated understanding of the type of archeological material that's found in the region. Uh, in Italy, for example, they have a good working knowledge of different types of um, Greek and Roman pottery because a lot of what's found in the tombs is pottery and they need, and some of these pots are worth a lot and some of them aren't. And so these regional middlemen um, will oftentimes help evaluate the objects that the looters have found. And then they'll connect to uh, what we'll call a transit country dealer who is somebody outside of the border of the home country who has connections to the art market. And that person will usually offer some money to the source country middleman and say, you know, I'll give you $500 for that pot. Um, in, in the 70s and 80s, this exchange usually happened through Polaroid pictures. Because of that, um, when we, uh, and the Polaroids were mailed from the middlemen to the foreign country, and sometimes those Polaroids were intercepted and sometimes they were captured in the dealers, you know, the, the, the transit countries, uh, company, uh, countries um, you know, the archives. And uh, that proves to be very important evidence of this, um, of where these things came from. Yeah, um, I just had a follow-up question. 
So for transit countries, are there any like super prominent examples of um, or super popular places where these middlemen are are located? Yeah, there are. And um, again, this is a commonality across different markets. So in the uh, world of classical antiquities, the Mediterranean, Switzerland has traditionally been the major market uh, country. And so with objects that are looted in Turkey or that are looted in, um, in Italy, certainly, they're oftentimes smuggled across the border to Switzerland and then warehoused in what they call free ports. These are tax-free warehouses where there's no import duties owed on objects that are imported because they're intended to be resold. And so they're allowed to sit there without paying import duties. Uh, Swiss law for many years did not recognize looting as a, as a, as a crime. And so um, dealers, uh, oftentimes dealers from Italy um, moved to Switzerland and opened up warehouses where they could store hundreds of thousands of these objects uh, in, in what they thought was a safe haven. Uh, and then these objects would be cleaned up. They'd be provided with uh, fake ownership histories to cover their illicit origins. And they'd re be packaged up for sale in the Western art markets, usually the UK, London, um, Paris, or uh, the United States were the most, most prominent ones. Um, in other parts of the world, there are other countries that play a similar role. So Dubai has played a similar role for objects coming out of both the Middle East but also objects out of Asia and Southeast Asia. Dubai is just a, a, a transit point, a, a, a port city where um, there's lots of warehouses and, and therefore um, you know, there's a great convenient place to store a lot of this material before it finds a home or a buyer. And so Dubai has played a similar role and there's other, there's other countries around the world that have, that have, that have similar Bangkok um, for South and Southeast Asian objects sometimes plays this role as a transit country. Thanks so much for that overview. Uh, what our next question is sort of is about is a follow up to that in terms of, um, you know, source countries realizing that they don't want to lose these antiquities, which countries have been the most aggressive in pursuing cases against looters or the middlemen or even, uh, you know, the ultimate recipients of those antiquities. Yeah, this has changed a lot in recent years, and it's, it's very interesting to see how, um, how it's spread. Um, I think Italy has been has long been the most uh, aggressive and successful country at repatriating its looted antiquities. They have a police force, the Carabinieri's um, Art Squad, as it's called in English, um, which is dedicated to the traffic of art to the to the stolen art market, and they have a pretty sophisticated um, uh, investigative tools that they use. I, I remember walking through the uh, Carabinieri's headquarters and seeing a whole room full of people wearing headphones. And I said, what are those guys doing? And they're all listening to wiretaps. I said, boy, you guys are using wiretaps on art fraud cases, that's pretty aggressive. And you know, in Italy, art means a lot and it's a, an important part of the culture and it's an archeologically rich country. And so the police force there is really dedicated a lot and, and de dedicate a lot of the methodologies used for tracking stolen art, including you know, the development of a really sophisticated database where they can track objects that are documented. And so when something pops up, pops up at auction in the United States, they can run that photo of the object being offered for sale and see if it matches anything in their database, right? Of stolen objects. So that um, Italy was really at the forefront of doing this. And that's, um, it's not a coincidence that when um, American museums started feeling the heat in the, you know, uh, really in the early and mid 1990s, it was Italy leading the charge. Um, 
uh, most of our book focuses on Italy's campaign to get back objects from the Getty, also Greece. Greece really followed in Italy's footsteps. Turkey has also really ramped up its efforts to get things back. That was something I was working on earlier today. Um, but in, in the last five years, what we've seen is a whole number of other countries really getting involved. And so in Nigeria uh, and, and in Africa, you have um, countries that have been you know, plundered both during the colonial era and in more contemporary times really being aggressive and going after stuff. You'll see this in the in their um, efforts to recover the Benin bronzes, right? Which is a, a very prominent case going on right now. Um, in uh, India, you saw the Indian government pursue a criminal case against an American antiquities dealer named Subhash Kapoor. Uh, Mr. Kapoor was a Manhattan antiquities dealer for decades, um, but was caught um, uh, basically paying thieves to break into Indian temples in Tamil Nadu a really archaeologically rich area of southern India, and and loot to order, meaning he would select certain chola bronzes that he wanted to sell on the market, and he'd point the thieves to the ones he wanted and leave the country, and then they would go and steal them and send those to him. Um, Cambodia in recent years has been very aggressive, um, but in a very different way than some other countries. They've been very aggressive targeting looted antiquities, but specifically looted antiquities taken systematically from a single temple um, uh, called Kokur. And so, um, you know, one of, the, one of the questions these countries face is so much has been taken over such a long period of time. How do they decide what to claim and what evidence can they muster to support those claims? Because there, you know, are not clear legal standards about what level of evidence is needed in order to prove something was looted and, and to force its return. Oftentimes this plays out not in uh, legal courtrooms, but in the courtroom of public opinion. And so it's, you know, uh, the, the question of kind of what was looted and what needs to go home is still a very live debate. Um, but th th to answer your question, uh, it, it, it's, it's really grown and, and caught on. And so there are a lot more countries today that are aggressively claiming their antiquities than there were, you know, 10 years ago when I started writing about this. I mean, along those same lines, I'm curious, which of those legal and public strategies have been more effective than others? Because obviously some countries have gotten their looted antiquities back and others haven't. Uh, and I'm curious what you think have been the most effective strategies for that. Yeah, it's a great question because um, uh, lots of uh, these countries have had very different results. Um, I, I think, you know, to, to kind of summarize, I think the most successful countries at reclaiming their antiquities have not said everything ever made in our country must come home, right? Um, that is an approach that some countries have taken. Um, Greece has occasionally taken that approach. Um, Egypt has sometimes taken that approach. It's a really expansive view of what they claim. And the problem with it is it creates a slippery slope argument for uh, the rest of the world to say, look, if you want King Tut back, then you're going to want back every Egyptian antiquity ever made. And some of these left your country, you know, 100 years ago. And are you really demanding that everything Egyptian um, go back? And that, that's the slippery slope argument that museums and, and others often raise to kind of argue against repatriation claims. A more successful strategy, which really was pioneered by Italy, is a uh, much um, more rigorous approach based on clear evidence of looting. And so, you know, the problem with the illicit antiquities trade is that the vast majority of objects, we can't prove where they came from. 
we can suspect that they were looted. We can see evidence on the objects themselves of tool marks that suggest they were looted, but nobody knows where these objects came from or how they got there. And that's an evidentiary gap that makes it very difficult to prove these cases. And so what Italy did was they said, let's A, do some rigorous police investigations of the looters doing this looting. Let's grab their records. And then let's choose objects where we can really make a strong documented case that this object was in a picture in 1991, you know, while it was still in the ground. And then now it's in your museum. And that type of hard evidence has been used to convincingly get um, uh, looted antiquities back. Uh, it's just not available in most cases. Um, thank you so much for that. And so I think we're going to sort of shift the conversation from talking about the countries or source countries and talking about, you know, the museums who are often receiving these, these looted antiquities. How have museums reformed their practices over the years? Yeah, at a high level, what you've seen is um, a wave of controversies that are quickly followed by a wave of reforms and then a new wave of controversies that show that those reforms didn't go far enough. And that has basically been the cycle uh, since I've been writing about this. I think the, the issues, you know, the Getty case was a really emblematic case for the American museum community because uh, a Harvard trained curator was being criminally charged by a foreign country with participating in a smuggling network. And that was pretty shocking. A lot of museum um, curators don't think of themselves as criminals. Um, and yet their museums sometimes are participating in criminal activity by buying antiquities, either uh, with no questions asked or not enough questions asked, or at times knowingly dealing with, with, with smugglers and, and middlemen. Um, so the, the Getty case triggered a, uh, a series of reforms at the, um, the Art, uh, Art Museum Directors Association, the AAMD, is, is kind of the um, Association of Art Museum Directors acts as an industry um, policy making body for the museum, for leading museums. Um, it is, uh, it, it does not have any legal authority. It is merely kind of an advisory body, um, but it does set the moral tone for the American museum community, at least with, with art museums, um, with prominent art museums. Um, the AMD adopted as uh, a series of, of specific policy reforms on antiquities acquisitions starting in 2008. They then faced a series of additional scandals. Uh, I think those showed that, that a lot of those reforms initially focused just on Greek and Roman antiquities and on the known smuggling networks that we'd exposed in, in our book and in the Italian investigation, but that those those same problems existed in Southeast Asian antiquities, in South Asian and Indian antiquities, in Mid Near Eastern and Middle Eastern antiquities, uh, and in African antiquities. And so what you've seen is that the incremental reforms that have been adopted have often not gone far enough, and that museums, while obeying those rules, have still gotten in trouble over the years and gotten caught. The Met, as recently as, um, I think, two years ago, uh, was caught buying a massive golden sarcophagus that um, was, was very quickly identified as having been smuggled um, out of Egypt. And, you know, it's, it was remarkable uh, because despite, you know, a decade or more of reforms, the top American museum, the museum, 
you know, that takes some of these issues that, that claims to take some of these issues very seriously, that has lawyers on staff focused on making sure the museum doesn't get in trouble. The impulse to acquire beautiful objects still outweighs the need to do proper due diligence and research on these objects. And so the Mets getting caught buying looted antiquities um, today, you know that the local university museums that are accepting donations from wealthy alumni and everybody in between continue to acquire looted antiquities on a daily basis. And so um, I have kept after this topic because I have seen that these reforms have not gone far enough and that it, it continues to be a problem. Um, we're also focusing our remarks mostly on US museums, but um, these reforms uh, have taken longer to be adopted uh, in other countries. Um, and so Australia went through its wave of reforms and you know, started by a scandal, again, involving this dealer named Supash Kapoor and some research that we did with um, uh, Australian investigators. You know, the Australian museums only began doing this reform process really in the last five years or so. Um, thank you so much for that. And I, as I was doing my research for this podcast, I've been seeing a lot of countries, particularly in Southeast Asia, actually having successful repatriation efforts. So um, it's a pretty cool connection. So in the last paragraph of your epilogue of Chasing Aphrodite, you, you end the book in a really interesting way. Um, you say, I quote, the new era she called for at Rutgers in 1998 is now within sight. It is one in which museums and countries alike will look beyond questions of ownership and embrace, as True said, quote, the sharing of cultural properties rather than their exploitation as commodities. Do you think we've already entered the quote unquote new era of acquisitions that you describe in your epilogue? Uh, I think the evidence would suggest that we're in the midst of a transition uh, from that old era where the type of behavior that was acceptable in the 70s and 80s and 90s in American museums and that today would be frowned upon if it were known um, is fading, but it's not gone. And uh, it's still, we're still seeing instances of it. Um, at the same time, there is a new generation of American museum curators, and this is true around the world, um, who are sensitized to these issues, who understand that, that um, buying looted antiquities is not acceptable and uh, are looking for ways to address not just uh, their current policies, but also address some of the past actions that those museums have taken. So the current controversy we see around the Benin bronzes is a great example, mostly focused on um, UK museums, but also you know American museums have Benin objects too. Um, there is an effort to redress the kind of historical horrors that happened to the to, um, in in Benin um, that were the, the, the these Benin bronzes were the product of this kind of uh, punitive campaign that was you know incredibly uh, destructive, um, uh, you know, and so that's that's a sign that there are some efforts, oftentimes in the wake of controversy, still not always proactive but efforts to um, redress historical wrongs, um, share objects instead of hoarding them, and, and um, sometimes in the wake of a dispute, a, a museum in a, a source country will reach a resolution that includes um, 
some type of beyond ownership, uh, you know, what, what we refer to in the final chapter is beyond ownership, you know, notion, meaning let's find a way to cooperate, to share the objects that are already known to us. Um, that means source countries making loans to Western museums um, and Western museums in return agreeing not to spend their resources buying off the black market and instead invest in conservation and restoration efforts and helping source countries preserve their antiquities. Um, the Getty, ironically, is at the forefront of some of these things. Um, the Getty Conservation Institute is really one of the lead, world's leading organizations for financing and, and, and actually carrying out um, really important archaeological conservation um, in China and places like that. Um, and other museums are starting to adopt that, uh, adopt that approach too. Uh, it's, we're not there yet. And so we need to keep pushing and we need to basically keep applying pressure to museums to reform because all too often we continue to see, um, you know, looted antiquities being acquired. Thanks so much for that answer. Our last sort of second to last question is, uh, do you think that there's anything in particular museums or governments or consumers should do that they're not doing right now to tackle the problem of looting? Lots. Um, as consumers, as museum goers, I think we need to get smart and ask the questions of our local institutions um, that we haven't thought to ask before. And that was really one of the reasons why we wrote the book was to plant the seed in people's minds and help them think about where did this object come from? How much did you pay for it? Who did you pay that money to? And, and what did you know about this object before you bought it? Did you do your due diligence? Museums in the United States are almost all tax exempt. And what that means is that they work for us. They don't have to pay taxes on oftentimes what is considerable wealth because they're doing the public a service. And so if they work for us, we should demand that they work better for us. And what that means is they should be more careful about what they buy and they should proactively evaluate the things they bought in the past to figure out which ones of them were looted and which ones need to go home and how they can make reparations for that activity. So as consumers, we need to be smart about consuming the artwork at our local institutions, meaning observing it, visiting it, funding it, donating to those institutions. We should put strings attached to that activity by demanding that our institutions be better actors in the, in the world stage. Um, museums need to be more proactive in their investigations. They have also uh, often been reactive and responded to claims, often lethargically and reluctantly. Um, but when, and only when forced to returning material, they should be more proactive. And many of them are by hiring provenance curators, curators whose job is not to buy more objects, but to research the objects in the collection, develop our understanding of them and figure out where they came from. Uh, that is a growing trend. You've seen um, a number of institutions hire curators of provenance and it's exciting to see that happening. Uh, I think they would tell you that they are still woefully underfunded. Um, they don't have a lot of institutional power within the organizations in which they work. Um, and so um, sometimes they may advise against something and it would go forward anyways. Um, but it's moving in the right direction. It needs to be encouraged. Um, you know, more broadly, uh, our society needs to do something. I mean, as, as, as much as museums have improved, the broader art market really has not. And so if you look at Sotheby's and Christie's and, and Bonham's auction houses on any given day, you will see obviously looted antiquities 
and in many cases, well-documented looted antiquities being traded openly uh, every day. And so those are businesses that are trading these objects for commercial benefit. And it, what's clear is despite years of uh, evidence that, that these objects are being openly sold on our auction houses and in dealerships on Madison Avenue, um, the business world has determined that it's still in their interest to sell these things and that the cost of getting caught is lower than the profit to be made from selling these things. Uh, really for looting to be uh, you know, mitigated, uh, we need to sever that connection to the, to the art trade. And, and make it unacceptable for these major businesses, whether they be dealers or they be auction houses, to continue to trade in these obviously looted antiquities. Thanks. I think you made Kimmy very happy talking about those provenance curators. She's interested. I in saw her light up when I said that. I, I think I see a future path for Kimmy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely love provenance. And, you know, it, it's, it's a really fascinating world because it's not just like the not just the ancient history of an object, we have to, like, I love that prov provenance curators have to look at the modern history of the object. Well, where has it been? And like, what's it doing now? So, yeah. So our, our final question, the one we sort of ask of all our interviewees is just very generally, is there anything that you'd want to share with our listeners as the sort of take home message um, from your interview today? Yeah, I think it's a point that we've touched on, which is that when you go to your local museum, uh, in addition to admiring the beauty of the objects there, we should think about their origins and their supply chain and the, 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 the moral and legal and ethical consequences of how these institutions acquire these things. It's something that I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about um, before I went, uh, before I started writing about these topics. You know, you go to a museum and you'd admire the beautiful things and maybe you'd get curious about one and do a little research. Uh, I never really looked closely at that label. And when you look at that label, you see information that suddenly um, raises new questions. Well, all of these were donated by the same donor. Where did that donor get them? What kind of tax write-off did the donor get in exchange for donating these objects? And if these objects are stolen, why is the donor getting a tax benefit for donating stolen property to my local museum? These are the kind of questions that lie below the kind of glossy surface of the museums um, that we should be asking because these are institutions that like all of our human institutions, they're fallible. They're subject to um, you know, uh, some greed and envy in addition to the kind of pursuit of beauty that they like to advertise. And, and we need to be mindful of that and, and be emboldened to challenge our local institutions and ask them, including um, our university museums, which hold lots of objects that are being donated to the university by alumni and others um, and are much less scrutinized than the big art museums. You know, where did those objects come from? How did we get them? What did we know about their past? And what does that tell us about our role in the world ethically? Uh, are we are our institutions living up to our values? That's the big takeaway for me from my work on this issue, is to is to is to raise those kind of questions as we look at, at the beautiful things out there in the art world. Thank you so much Thank you. Uh, for that. We really appreciate this. Um, you know, it's it's been um, quite a journey already getting through to this episode. Uh, you know, as part of our podcast series. 
Um, and chasing Aphrodite was really, I mean, Kimmy was not exaggerating when she said it was the inspiration for it. It really yeah. was. Uh, she read it over the winter. I started reading it as well. And uh, we pitched this, this uh, podcast to our Keck Center for International Strategic Studies and managed to get it funded. And so we're super happy to be able to have uh, guests like you come on. Yeah, you're our Congrats amazing. you too. Well, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I, I look forward to hearing uh, future episodes. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We um, really appreciate it. And to, to our listeners, if you haven't already, please check out Jason's book. It's called Chasing Aphrodite. Um, I personally read it in like three days, even though it's a little bit hefty. It's it the pages turn so quickly. And I like you'll probably be just as sucked into the Getty scandal as I was. And like just like, oh my gosh, this was a thing and this happened. So yeah, please read it. So yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate your time and uh, best of luck continuing all of your you know, continued efforts um, to uh, expose these kinds of things. I mean, it's uh, fascinating stuff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the things we try to tackle in our podcast is all the nuance in whether to repatriate or not, you yeah. know, a given artifact and the legal cases and the strategies and whether something's looted or not, the questions around it. And so uh, thank you for demystifying some of that complexity for our, us and for our listeners. Yeah. Yeah. Delighted to talk to you too. Support for History for the Taking is provided by the Keck Center for International and Strategic Studies at Claremont McKenna College. Special thanks also to Professor Terrell Jones and Professor Hilary Apple. And also a big shout out to Emily Pugh, who helps us immensely. So thank you. And our music credit goes to Calepix on Pixabay. Until next time, this is History for the Taking. I'm Desmond Mantle. I'm Kimmy Adler. And we hope to see you again. Bye.